All right, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Or good afternoon, wherever you are and whenever you're watching us. Hang on, I have a visual aid that I need to, to bring. This makes for good video, right? Where'd he go? There. Now my joy is complete. And, oh, wait. I have one other thing. Prism glasses. Whatever it takes to have joy in a season like this, right? I'm going to preach. This is awesome. I see angels. I see angels around every light. Around your... Okay. That might be distracting. So I'm going to take those off. But that brings us to our message today. Thank you for joining us in-house here. If you heard, Pastor Gabe, if you're out there watching online and you've been hesitant to come back in, wondering what the guidelines are, we can... We can double or triple the amount of people that we have in the sanctuary safely. We disinfect. We do all the things we need to do. But we need to have you here. We've been kind of waiting for the, for the government to come through and say, yes, it's okay. We're making it, you know, it's, it's allowable. So the government has done that. They've made that allowable. But there's a higher level. There's scripture. There's God's word that says, I command you to meet together. Don't forsake getting together. There is something so valuable about being together. So I know I get it watching online. Sometimes it's the only possible way. Sometimes, though, maybe it's just a convenience. And if you fall into that category, I would love for you to be here. There is something so powerful when we get together and worship together. Now, let's get going in the series. We're in this new series called Good News of Great Joy. Might have been a giveaway with me bringing the, the joy up there. But <clears throat> we're, we're following along the, the season of Advent. A lot of people don't celebrate Advent. A lot of people know of it, but it's not really anything that you're, that you're intentional about. Well, I want to be intentional about that. And if you've been following along with us with the Advent calendar trees that, that we gave out here at the church, or maybe you've got your own, or maybe you've just been following along with the devotionals online every day. Um, if not, Facebook, YouTube, I encourage you to join us there. You can pick up anytime. It's a daily devotional, and the whole idea is just keeping ourselves intentionally focused on Jesus. There are so many things that grab for our attention these days, especially now. Like, anytime it happens, that's just the way life seems to be. But now... There are so many things that just grab for your attention. And what I want to do is not allow how many shopping days left till Christmas to be what defines our view of Christmas. That's what we're focused on. Eight days, seven days. Okay, I'm down to the Amazon cutoff date now. I don't, I don't want that to be how we see the season leading up to the birth of our Savior. So the whole idea is to prepare our hearts, be intentional about coming up to this day, this day that we call Christmas, which is the first advent of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what it's all about. On Christmas Day, we get to celebrate that good news of great joy. And that's, in fact, that's our, that's our scripture, kind of our guiding scripture for this series. Let me show it to you again just to make sure we're all on the same page here. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And it says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
So we're going to take throughout this idea, this Advent series that we're doing, we're going to take that scripture apart. First of all, good news. We talked about good news last week. We talked about the hope. The good news is the gospel message of Jesus, which is our hope in the things of the, uh, the, the promises of God, not, not I hope it's going to work out correctly. It's, it, it's the good news that we know we can count on it working the way God intends it to work. And to me, that, that is good news. That's the very gospel message of Jesus. But that's been turned somehow. We mentioned this last week. It's been turned into this, this idea of hope has become kind of a childish thing. It's something that you're kind of you're kind of made fun of sometimes for just holding on to this hope. It's become something that if you're an adult and you're really paying attention and you're a little bit more realistic, you should grow beyond that. Maybe a healthy dose of skepticism in the world rather than hope. But we know, we know as followers of Jesus, if you are, you know this, our hope is so much more than just a gamble. Let's see what happens. It is the fulfillment of God's promise. And all throughout Scripture, we have seen God's promises being fulfilled time after time after time. If you wonder why prophecy in the Old Testament and things are so important to us, it's because each one of those prophecies, each one of those things foretelling of a Messiah or of something that's going to happen is a little breadcrumb that God leaves for us to be able to see as we walk this path through life, to be able to see that and go, he's been here before. And he told me about this, and there it is. And that gives us peace as we navigate everything, knowing he is sovereign and he is in charge, and there's nothing that surprises him. That's the gospel message. Today, though, we're going to go a step further in that. We're going to go from the good news of great joy. So we have good news, great joy for all the people. Okay, so it's one, two, three. Good news, great joy, all the people. Today has been born a Savior. So that's what that's kind of going to be our outline as we talk through this this uh, scripture here. This week we're focusing on the great joy to be found in Jesus Christ, and I think it might surprise you if you stay with me exactly what we're talking about here. Great joy. If you might think, what do you think of when you see things all lit up and say joy? You see that in the mall. You see it's kind of just a generic term, right? Joy. What does joy mean to you? Joy could mean anything to a little kid. Joy is I'm seeing the pile of presents grow underneath the tree. And the bigger it gets, the more joy I have. The parent, on the other hand, is going, as I see that grow, I'm looking at my credit card bills and my joy diminishes. It's inversely proportional to the size of the pile, as an adult, that is. That's if you look at joy through an earthly perspective. That's if you look at joy through... What, what pleasures you and what makes you feel good, maybe satisfies your flesh. If you look at it that way, joy can be something that is fleeting, hard to hang on to. Anybody have trouble hanging on to your joy this time of year? I do. So let's talk about that idea of joy. We're going to focus on that for the rest of this message. Make sure that our view of what biblical joy is lines up with the way we're living our lives. So, again, we're going to focus on that. Now, this time, as, as we go in, the, the, the birth account of Jesus was not a particularly joyful time. 
in, in the area. How many people think, of, when you think of Christmas and you kind of think of the times, you see the manger scene. And it's peaceful. Or maybe you look at like a nativity like we have in the back there. You're looking at that, and it's quiet, and it's peaceful, and maybe it's a starry night, and there's some animals laying around, and it all just feels like a very peaceful and serene kind of an atmosphere, right? That's pretty much the way, even singing Silent Night and things, just kind of calms our heart, puts you in that place. That's really not what was going on around the time of the birth of Christ. So I want to dive into that just a little bit here. So... Most scholars agree that Jesus was not born in year zero, right? A lot you would think, you know, we base our calendar on before Christ and after Christ, but it's not after Christ. It's, anyway, we won't go there. But we think that it starts at zero when Christ was born, but in fact, it was really probably about 4 B.C., about 4 BC. We know this from a lot of different sources. We know it from secular historical sources. We know it from biblical accounts. And those things kind of go together to paint us kind of a picture of what's going on around the time that Jesus was born. So we know this. We know about 4 BC because that's when Herod died. Now we know really accurately when Herod died because of really good Roman record keeping. Romans were good at a lot of things. They were really good at torture and mayhem, and they were good at record-keeping. So through that, we know that Herod died in about 4 B.C. So if we put that together with the biblical accounts of what's happening around here, we can get a good picture of what's happening. So follow along with me. So remember the, the, the Magi, the three wise men. By the way, we'll talk about them a little more in depth next week, but... It's not, there's nowhere in Scripture that says it's three wise men, okay? It's typically thought of that way because there's three gifts that are outlined, but it could have been two or five or we don't know how many. But it was a group of magi or wise men following the star in the east, the Bethlehem star. You heard Pastor Gabe talk about this event that's coming up. I think it's amazing. The last time this happened was in 1200-something uh, A.D. when this happened. So it's been a long time since this has happened, and it's significant from a biblical standpoint. But they're following this star of the east. They follow it to Jerusalem, and they see the baby Jesus. Now, Jesus was born a week before in Bethlehem. They made the trip into Jerusalem to, for, so that he could be circumcised at the temple. So that's why he's in Jerusalem. The Magi come in there now. The Magi had been contacted before this by Herod, who heard of the king of the Jews being born. And any threat to his sovereignty, any threat to the status quo was something he needed to investigate and preferably squash if he could. So he gets these wise men together and he gives them a charge. He says, hey, I want you to go and go find me the king of the Jews and report back to me and tell me what you see except his intentions weren't entirely pure. His motives were a little sketchy. In fact, he wanted them to report back when they found him and what they found so that then he could go and end that threat. Here's what happens, though. After seeing the baby Jesus, the Magi are visited by an angel in a dream. And this angel in the dream tells them quite simply, 
I don't want you to go back and tell Herod anything. In fact, just go home. And that's what they do. They just go back to where they came from um, and not telling Herod anything. Meanwhile, I've always wanted to do that. The next one is going to be the pow. So if I need to punch up a message, we'll do that. Meanwhile, at the same time, Joseph, okay, Jesus' father, has a dream of his own and a visitation by an angel in a dream of his own. And this is how it goes. I'll read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. In my version, the New American Standard reads like this. Now, when they had gone, the they is the magi, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets, out of Egypt I called my son. There's just another little little snapshots. Fulfilled what was said by the prophets. So when this happened, so Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, in the middle of the night, they sneak away. And this enrages Herod. Because not only did the Magi betray him and just disappear and not come back to him, but somehow or another, Jesus and his family had escaped. He didn't know where they went. He just knew they weren't where they were supposed to be anymore. He lost track of them. And this outrages him. He's so mad. Now, here are some of the unpleasant things that are kind of happening around this time of Jesus' birth. Again, some a little before, some a little after, but it's the atmosphere that's going on in that area, far from peaceful. So we know this. So first of all, Scripture gives us a clue, Matthew 2.16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So the Magi told him what they had, or he heard what they had found. The Magi told him where they were going to find him, all this kind of stuff. So he knew, even though they didn't report back, he knew kind of around the time. And so what he decided is just to be safe, every male child under two years old in this whole region, we're just going to kill them all. Just kill them all. That's our best chance of getting Jesus. Now, they didn't know. He didn't know that Jesus had escaped to Egypt. And his reach, Herod's reach didn't go that far. But early estimates, early historical accounts estimate that between 64,000 and 144,000 young boys were killed. Now, later, maybe more scholarly estimates um, put this number at maybe... Only hundreds of babies killed. Either way, that is a horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy. If you have a Catholic background, you might know that that the Catholics, on December 28th, they commemorate this with a feast called the Feast of the Innocents. Um, It's simply called the Massacre of the Innocents. And here's a painting from the 1400s kind of depicting, um, that's Herod up there on the right, and here's all the, the massacre of the children. He called all the parents, bring your children, bring your boys, bring them in. 
And when they did, he had them killed. Herod is not a very happy-looking guy up there. We don't know if that's exactly what he looked like, but that's the image that people had of him, is that he was this, he was an evil, evil, evil guy. After this, this wasn't enough. You can go ahead and take that down. As if that wasn't enough. Herod goes even further, kind of goes on a rampage. He's just so angry. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is the high court. And he decides, the Sanhedrin is being kind of vocal at this point about being um, upset with some of Herod's policies. His taxes are incredibly high. Um, he had gotten with Rome, and Rome had actually gotten into the point of where they were appoint. Rome was appointing the Jewish high priest. They were choosing a puppet that would do what they said when they said and appointing him as the high priest. And the Sanhedrin, again, the Jewish high court, had the audacity to stand up to Herod and say, this is not right. You can't do that. The reward for that is that more than half of the Sanhedrin was executed immediately. Seventy-something were in the Sanhedrin. At least half of them were executed on the spot because they openly disagreed with Herod. Now, when Herod dies, he divides up the land, or his will divides up the land among his three sons. He's got three sons. Anybody that has sons knows that as soon as you divide something among them, they immediately start fighting over who got the most or the best or anything like that. It's just it's the way life has always worked. Only Herod's sons are a little more ruthless. They're a little more bloodthirsty, and more importantly, they have each got a tribe around them of their own guys, kind of their own little private army to follow them around, and they start battles, and there is fighting, and it is bloody. It is nasty. Finally, after all this fighting, Herod's, one of his, one of his sons, Archelaus, he's 19 years old, and he kind of rises to the top. He sort of wins out and takes over control of the area. His first step is to, like any despot that we see, he wants to solidify his position. So the first thing he does is he starts seeking out those who are disagreeing with him, those who are being vocal, and immediately kills over 3,000 Jewish protesters. They're out protesting high taxes in this case, and he just, he just kills them all. No questions asked, no due process. He just massacres them right away. Cancels the Passover celebration, um, and things fall into chaos. The whole area, Judea, Palestine, Palestine's the whole region, it just falls into chaos. And you start seeing these little pockets. Now, now Archelaus might have been ruthless, but he wasn't all that smart or all that experienced. And basically, things start to just go into chaos beneath him. He still considers himself ruler, but what happens is we start seeing all these little local, we call them warlords today. And they have these little villages, these little kind of miniature kingdoms, um, which they actually declare themselves to be king of that area. At one point, there are 20-some-odd kings in this Palestine area. And each one of them, self-appointed, each one of them decides that they are going to rape and plunder and pillage their, their villages, their area, at will, with no, nothing to stop them. Archelaus is the one who's supposed to be in charge, and he doesn't care. So it's just going crazy. There's chaos 
everywhere so bad that word gets back to Rome, and Rome sends two legions, in this case 12,000 soldiers, Roman soldiers, to go restore some kind of order. The problem is Rome was not very diplomatic in how they would solve those sorts of problems. They go in there, this, these Roman legions, they go in and immediately squash all these little warlords and then just take their place. They start raping, pillaging, plundering, burning, looting, doing all these things, basically to teach the people of Judea and Palestine, this is what happens when you cross Rome. Many accounts, and one specific uh, historical account that I found, uh, suggest that Roman soldiers actually went into Nazareth where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were, fresh back from their trip to Egypt, trying to restore and regain their life, actually went into Nazareth and burnt down part of that city as well, burnt and destroyed. This is the peaceful atmosphere that the baby Jesus was born into. Not typically what we would think of. So if you think about this, think of the context. Think of that as what's going on in this region, right? The, the specific time frames are sometimes bantered back and forth, but that's the atmosphere overall in this Palestine region when the angel appeared to the shepherds and spoke that. So think of that in your head, that background. As I read this scripture, I'll, just, I'll put it back up on screen again. To refresh this, in that context, Luke 2, 10 to 11, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Think about this. This wasn't, this wasn't silent night, holy night going on. This was chaos in the land. And so this word, good news of great joy, who will be, that will be for all the people, a Savior. Has, they'd be going, yes, a Savior. We've been waiting for this. We've been told. We've been preparing. We've got, we've got these lambs for Passover. We know all about a Savior, and he's here. And when the angel told them, it'd be hard to ignore that, right? So the angel tells them, and they actually go and see it. But wouldn't you have thought, that you'd wake up tomorrow and life is going to be different. I've been told for generations a Savior is coming. An angel appears to me blinding in the night and tells me a Savior has been born today. Go see him. He's here. Go see him. You'd be thinking when the sun comes up tomorrow, it's a whole new ball game, baby. That's what I'd be thinking. That's not how it worked out for them. That's how it worked out for anybody here. Like I said before, great joy was not in huge supply at that point. It was a hard life. It was arduous. It was death seemed to lurk around every corner, and there was it was not a great time. And joy was as hard to find there as I would argue that it is to find today sometimes. So let's talk about this thing called joy. Let's talk about joy. And make sure that our mind is seeing the good news of great joy the way that we ought to be seeing it. Because I think, I know for myself, I struggle with that. I equate earthly things with joy, earthly experiences with joy, and that may not be where Scripture is leading us. Let's talk about it. 
So the angel had told the shepherds that the birth of the Savior was good news of great joy, but most of them probably did not live to see any real change in their life at all. 33 years later, so from the time the good news of great joy proclamation that the angel made to the shepherds until the time that Jesus died on the cross, about 33 years. And in that time frame, things didn't get any better for the people of this region. In fact, in many ways, they got much worse for the people of the region. Here's kind of the bookend. So good news of great joy that the angels spoke, a Savior has been born. Fast forward 33 years, Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about that. Joy was such a precious thing, such a worthwhile goal that Jesus endured the cross for it. That is certainly more than packages under a Christmas tree. There has to be more to this biblical joy. So what was the joy set before him? Was it the same joy that the shepherds were promised 33 years in that case earlier? Let's draw a distinction between earthly joy and eternal joy. Let's look at the difference because I think that's where it lies. Heavenly joys, those eternal joys, the one that was announced to the shepherds, the one that Christ gave himself for, they're unshakable. They're unshakable, they are eternal, and get this, they are not always easily or comfortably accomplished. The idea of comfort does not always follow along with the idea of eternal joy. These earthly joys, think of them more, use the word pleasure instead. They can be fragile, fleeting, and most often, more often than not, they're kind of aimed in some way or another at achieving comfort. So it's kind of literally the opposite of that eternal joy. Think about it this way. Many of our earthly joys begin to diminish in the very act of enjoying them. And I call them earthly joys. Think of them, the church speak would be fleshly joys or fleshly pleasures. In the very act of enjoying them, the shine starts to diminish almost immediately. Those which especially depend on the gratification of the flesh. Let's say, for example, and there's a million examples. I know they're coming to your mind. Let's, let's talk about, I used birthday cake in the last... I can look at a chocolate birthday cake and go, I want that entire birthday cake. That would be so satisfying, and that would give me so much joy. And in the process of eating that entire birthday cake, shame starts to set in. In the process of enjoying that thing that I thought would be so enjoyable that I really wanted, fill in the blank, by the way, with your thing the shine starts to come off. And by the time it's done, I'm left with the joy's gone. And it's really just shame and regret that I did that. And here's the thing. They become, those things, those earthly joys become less and less satisfying 
the more we indulge in them, leading us to a higher appetite for more and more and more of that thing, trying to satisfy us with decreasing returns. And there are so many things that we can fill in that blank with that as you enjoy it, your hunger, your appetite for more becomes more and more. At the very same time, it becomes less and less satisfying. Those are earthly pleasures. Once they become unpleasant or difficult, they become expendable. We can just get rid of them and move on to the next thing. It's not that way with eternal joy. The eternal joy that I'm thinking of now when we talk about Christmas and the joy of Christmas, the good news of great joy, that's an eternal joy, and it's not dependent on things being comfortable or easy. In fact, we see in Scripture it always has been just the opposite. The thing is, though, those kind of joys will be joys that don't diminish, that you don't get tired of, that don't cause shame, no matter how rough the road gets or how long it takes to get there. Those kind of joys that line up with the heart of God for you, for his people, they don't diminish. So let's take a look. That, that scripture from Hebrews 12 too, let's look at it in context of the before and after, and maybe that'll help us kind of wrap our minds around this idea just a little bit. Again, I'll read it to you again just to refresh. Hebrews 12 too, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him endured the cross. Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews 11. We're going to look in context. We're going to study something, really, really do it justice to figure out what was going on. We need to read the before and after. Let's go back before. Hebrews 11. I'm not going to read it all to you. Hebrews 11 is all about, and you can read it on your own, it's all about heroes of the faith accomplishing things through faith that never would have been possible on their own, that they never would have thought they could do, and in fact, most often openly scoffed at the idea. But it was accomplished through faith. Listen to some of the things. Again, it's, it's kind of just a list of things. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. By faith, Noah was warned by God about the things not yet seen and prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the Pharaoh. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. These are all scriptural quotations and Many, many, many more. Many more. And Hebrews 11, now that was Hebrews 11, the very last verse of Hebrews 11, the last two verses, 39 and 40, end like this. We'll put it on screen so you can see it. 
And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Let me repeat that. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, many of them, if you read the biblical accounts and you're familiar with the stories, they received at least a a short-term promise, their deliverance from from the armies of Egypt or whatever it was. There was a short-term promise. But the overarching big promise was Christ, was a Messiah. And none of them lived to see that. But this tells us that God was waiting for that until we could all be made perfect in Christ. So those biblical heroes back then are waiting for us to be made perfect in Christ. God was waiting for that. I love that scripture. Once all have heard the good news, then we will all be made perfect in Christ. So that's Hebrews 11. That's the end of Hebrews 11. So with that in mind, we go into 12, and Hebrew 12 starts out with the words, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, jump back and find out, therefore, what was the going on that the therefore is. And it reads like this, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the witnesses they're talking about are all these, Moses, Abraham, Enoch, all these, that's our cloud of witnesses. Let us also, just like they did, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the translation is, of all this idea that I just said, throughout history, people were able to do things, accomplish things, persevere through their faith, far beyond what they ever thought they could do on their own and face it with joy. Now, you look at the stories of all those guys, there's very little joyful moments if you're reading their stories. But they were able to do that just as Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus gave himself up on the cross with joy because he knew that through his sacrifice, we would then be equipped with everything that we would need to ultimately join him in heaven. That was his destiny. That was his purpose. Persevering through trial of every kind, and that gave him joy. So that's a little bit different than we typically look at joy, isn't it? Persevering through trial. Now, That's not exactly where we typically want our minds to go when we think about Christmas. But with Jesus, knowing that he had accomplished what was asked of him, knowing his purpose, taking his right hand of, uh, taking a seat at the right hand of God, fulfilling his destiny, the thought of that in the midst of that pain on the cross, the thought of that gave him joy. Joy and something being pleasant are not connected. So our great joy, promised by the angel, 
and finding its origin in the birth of Jesus. That was step one of our receiving this fullness of joy. It should be the knowledge that through Christ we have the ability to persevere through any trial with peace, certainty, and a determination of purpose that would not be possible without him. That is where our joy should come from. Think about this. This is the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking here, and he says this. We'll put this on screen too. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So again, not necessarily a scripture you associate with Christmas. Tribulation, trouble, that's not what you want to think of typically as you go through Christmas. And I'm not saying that this should not be a time of just happiness and peace, but that should be placed where it belongs. As we near Christmas in this, in this first advent of Jesus Christ, the celebration of that, let's remember the good news of the gifts that were promised, hope, joy, peace, all of those things find their fulfillment in Christ. Not in anything we can strive for or accomplish here on earth. They find their fulfillment in Christ, and he alone is the author and perfecter of our faith. So this season, let's celebrate intentionally. Let's be intentional and not accidental. Keep our eyes fixed on him in the midst of a storm and not equate joy and the promises of God with things going our way, with things being easy or comfortable, because that's not what our joy in Christ is. That joy, that eternal joy, can only be found in him, and it's not dependent on what we see around us. That's what we celebrate this Christmas, and that, church, that's where my great joy comes from, and I hope we can see it a little bit differently. Thank you, guys. Hey, worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. We're going to go into a time of communion now. If you're here in-house, we have the communion cups on the table in the back, um, and you can grab those and celebrate. If you're home, wherever you are watching us, the elements themselves are only symbolic, so it can be anything. But let's talk about that. Before we get to it, while you gather your supplies... We have, worship, we have a prayer team here in-house, and they'll be in the back. And if you need prayer, prayer is just simply, just means talking to God. Do you have something that you want to say to the Lord? Do you have something maybe you want to unburden yourself with or maybe repent of putting your joy in places where it doesn't belong? Maybe you have something entirely unrelated. See them, and they will pray with you. It's important. It's our biggest weapon against the lies of the enemy is prayer, simply talking to God. And that's one of the things we have access to through what Jesus did. If you're here in-house, we also have the crosses. You can write a, a note, a prayer request on a paper and just pin it to the cross. There's paper and pens next to both. Through our prayers, lifting our prayers up to God and then watching them, time after time after time be answered that helps to give us joy to know that we're on that right course and that's what we 
That's one of the many things that we celebrate when we take communion together. So if you have your, what you have that represents the body, take that. Jesus Christ gave his body to be broken. We say that word lightly, but the fullness of what he went through is hard to wrap our minds around. But he willingly gave himself, born born of the Virgin Mary on earth, lived as a man, and then gave himself up for you, broken so that you could have the promises of God. If you accept that, just take the body. The blood of Christ, Jesus calls it the blood of the new covenant. That's exactly what it is. But the covenant means that you don't have to do it all yourself. In fact, you can't do it all yourself. But by partaking in the blood of Christ, you accept the work that he has done. Lord, we just give you thanks on this day and every day. Keep our eyes focused on you this season. The joy in our hearts, let it flow from you and our knowledge of who we are to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.
Oh, oh, oh.